Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. You know, the first time we talk about the prospects of UFO reality, people suggest, well, they must be from outer space. The big question is, are we just making assumptions, or is there evidence for that, or might there be evidence for still another theory? Well, coming up on the first part of this week's episode of the PowerCast, we're hearing from Mac Tonys, who's an author, and he'll be talking about that very subject. On part two, we'll hear from Kevin D. Randall, longtime UFO investigator and author, who has done in-depth investigations of the Roswell UFO crash and other big cases. So a lot coming up this week on the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You know, Mac, it has been for so many years in the UFO field among most people who believe in these things that UFOs represent visitations by entities or beings from other planets. But along the way, some of us have come to other conclusions that we think might have a better chance of accuracy. So let's talk about your voyage. You're looking into some new ideas about UFO reality. How did this journey begin? I guess uh, beginning reading things by Jacques Vallée and John Keel. Both of those guys are very uh, theoretical, and, I, and I, I appreciate that angle. They, and they weren't talking about extraterrestrials. They both, they both shared the suspicion that we're dealing with something stranger than extraterrestrials, and most people have difficulty thinking about something stranger than ETs. What could be weirder than aliens from another planet? But uh, I think that there is indeed a possibility of something weirder than extraterrestrials, and uh, that weirdness might actually be uh, something, something much 
much closer to home, and we're conditioned to accept accept the extraterrestrial hypothesis for UFO visitation as kind of the only esoteric option. It's either it's either all bunk or it's aliens from another planet. And I think if you look at the at the evidence carefully and holistically, and look at it throughout throughout history, and look at different aspects of it, ranging from occupant in, encounters as well as some actual just just sightings of, of apparent craft in our skies, I think uh, it lends itself to an indigenous interpretation where we're dealing with indeed a non-human intelligence, but not necessarily one from outer space. And that's kind of that's the idea that I've been batting around lately, basically subjecting it to different perceptual filters to see how it fares, to see how it withstands, to see how it holds up to the evidence. I think it's in contention. I think it's a valid hypothesis. I don't think it makes any inferences that are uncalled for. So why is it garnered such negative response from the overall UFO community? People seem really down on this whole idea, and people get very upset at the mere mention of the possibility of this. Well, it's got this negative baggage associated with it because of like uh, Richard Shaver and the Hollow Earth and things like that. They automatically associate it with far out, you know, pretty pretty crazy ideas. It, it is it, on, on the face of it, it's a very paranoid theory. The idea that we're sharing the planet with some of the species it sounds pretty ludicrous. I think once you start, you know, contemplating the, the technological abilities that uh, e- even even we have, and start uh, considering that we might be sharing the planet with the species that has developed in certain other technological spheres a little more than we have. It doesn't even require that huge gulf to imagine a species that is in seclusion right here on the the same planet. But but nevertheless, when you first consider it, it sounds a little wacky, and and I think the old guard in the UFO community is very wary to, you know, they they feel feel threatened and marginalized with, with the ETH, so they really don't want to and they're committed to it. I mean, decades have been spent, you know, and this is the best we've come up with is the ETH. What you're, what you're saying, though, is that there's a whole generation of, of researchers that is committed to protecting a stated position and perhaps less committed to actually understanding the, the true source and nature of the phenomenon. Yeah, and I didn't really consciously expect this when I started, you know, posting this stuff online, but... Uh, very much as a reaction. Some people really like it. Some people, you know, are like, "Hey, this is this is interesting." And uh, some people are have you know violently and disagree, and they they really don't want to be bothered with it. And yeah, I think that's pretty revealing about the, the state of mind that goes hand in hand with with any kind of extreme, bizarre. Uh, field of study, and I think UFO research is definitely one of those. Hmm. Extremely bizarre, that's my middle name. (laughs) Well, Well, let's expand upon this for a minute, because what we're essentially talking about here is the idea that there is a race of technologically advanced beings of some sort that co inhabit the planet with us. And I think what people need to understand is that maybe we're talking about co inhabiting the dimensional space of the planet, but maybe not the same set of dimensions at the same time. Maybe we're not talking about or are we talking about creatures living under the ocean? That's a good sight there, because yeah, I, it's actually my my little version of, of the idea. Like Keel talked about the the super spectrum, you know, where we have beings coming from different levels, down downshifting themselves from higher levels of of, a, of its spectrum. So basically, kind of a parallel worlds variation. And the same mm-hmm. thing with Valet with his multiverse. My particular little theoretical slant here is that uh, we're not dealing with anything even smacking of that kind of paranormal 
this that you get with Keel and Valet and others. But I think that the UFO phenomenon might be explained in terms of a, a physical flesh and blood species right on Earth right now with no need for other dimensional space or other, dimen- other dimensions or parallel, parallel aspects of space-time or anything like that. I think they could be right here living in seclusion and yeah like you mentioned under our oceans I think, I think there's a great deal of evidence uh, there's there have been you know books written about aquatic encounters and that seems to be a whole aspect of the UFO phenomenon that I think has kind of gone overlooked people say well you know it's aliens and they might have bases under underwater yeah maybe you know quite possibly but you know I don't see why we can't have some indigenous creatures doing the same thing Colin he also have all kinds of references to underground bases and, and, not, and not, the, not the ones that kind of surfaced in the 1980s you know with all your gray aliens you know commingling with scientists near Area 51 and everything a lot of that was disinfo but you have some legitimate accounts of, of mountainous regions with saucers you know craft I should say you know entering and exiting these, these camouflage concealed entrances and exits and you know that, that could be uh, an extraterrestrial outpost of some kind or it could be evidence of some sort of uh, subterranean presence and uh, that's not necessarily extraterrestrial it could they could be uh, indigenous this um was sort of tie into the guest we had on recently a fellow from austria by the name of klaus dona talked to us a lot about ancient artifacts and one of the things i didn't get a chance to ask him about when he was on the show were these very strange artifacts that were found in um, south africa in the early part of the 20th century these um metallic spheres Oh, you're going to mention it. <laughs> well, I mean, this is really interesting. They came yeah, out know, of yeah, Precambrian rock, 2.8 million year old rocks. Uh, these things came out of these rocks and uh, and these rock formations. And the idea that you had some kind of technologically worked metal 2.8 million years ago flies in the face of everything we know about human history. But perhaps it's I, and, and since we've had Klaus on that show, it's occurred to me that maybe there's a possibility what we're seeing are technological artifacts of a companion civilization, one that we don't know about. Yeah, I think I think searching the archaeological record is a very important step to take. As far as those little spheroids are concerned, yeah. I, I actually kind of kind of looked into that and had ended up a geologist kind of that I knew peripherally looked into it, and uh, it's kind of hard to get your to, to get a to get your finger on that exactly what those are. I know at least one of them has three very nice little grooves around the center. You know, it looks very mm-hmm. deliberate, very uh, very artificial. Others are less so, and uh, there's the possibility that, that, that this has been amplified by, you know, the desire to believe that they are something other than what they are. And uh, there might it, there seems to be, uh, mind is saying that there is a plausible geologic explanation for the creation of these little spheroids. And that doesn't necessarily explain the grooves. Maybe some of the grooves uh, arose by accident. Nevertheless, what, your basic argument uh, that uh, looking at uh, the, the, the uh, archaeological record for signs of, an, uh, of another presence on our planet. That's one angle that I haven't thoroughly addressed yet in, in the manuscript for my book, but, but I think it's a valid one, and I think that there are, are hints here and there that perhaps people were aware of this. Uh, the Jinn and uh, Middle Eastern folklore, I think, are candidates for that. Uh, if you look at the Indian Vedic texts, you have... Uh, you know, basically just uh, these godlike beings flying around in, in technological devices. They're not described in supernatural terms. They're described in, in you know, what, what appears to, to me to be technological terms. And uh, I think that is consistent with my cryptoterrestrial idea where we're dealing with a species right here on Earth. You're in the-
the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. This evening, we welcome Mac Tonys. Our guest recently spoke to us about going-ons on Mars, and today is talking to us about his rather interesting theory. I don't know if it's really his theory, but we'll get to that in a moment, about the potential crypto-terrestrial origin for UFOs. Mac, when we talk about this topic, we did mention that it seems to tie into things that have sort of previously eluded some, some explanation. One of the things that I found fascinating was that we hear some many stories about encounters with occupants of UFOs, and there seems to always be, not always, but very often, there is a sense of preoccupation or interest in these creatures in terms of the state of our environment, the state of the health of the planet. And it's, mm-hmm. it's always seemed odd. Why would an alien species be concerned about the ecological state of our planet? But maybe if they're coexisting on this planet with us, well, gee, now all of a sudden that seems to make it fairly clear as to why they would have that interest, don't you think? Right, yeah. I mean, you can make a valid argument for extraterrestrials being interested in the, in, in the livelihood of in the well-being of our planet. You know, they might want to study us and they might want to preserve us without without playing their hand and, and letting us know they're here and, and uh, abducting people and showing them, you know, images and and turning them into unwitting profits, you know, ecological profits would be would be one way of kind of kind of perpetuating some attitude. What's the current myth though with the contact cult that of course yeah, yeah they come the, here to help us rather than to harm us. They warn us against testing nuclear weapons back in the 1950s. Now the space people quote unquote warn us about the environment. But if they are indigenous to this world, they appear to be misdirecting us. They make us think they're from elsewhere. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that the extraterrestrial origin is subterfuge. In, in many cases, it has the flavor of, a, of an orchestrated, staged presence. Lots and lots of sightings of, of humanoids. Uh, the, the very fact that they're humanoid at all to me suggests that they might not be alien in the extraterrestrial sense. But uh, yeah, you have lots of sightings of, of uh, humanoids taking soil specimens and, and doing things with, well, if you, if you accept some quote-unquote abduction reports as basically accurate, by no means all, but some. Um, then you have this preoccupation with human genetics as well, and uh, it even seems that we're genetically compatible with them, and that's hardly what you would expect of actual aliens from another star system. The thing I worry about here is why would these quote-unquote aliens want to constantly take samples yeah, from right. our soil? I think once you've done it a couple of times, you got well, I think, a picture I of think, what's going on. I think you put your finger on it. I think there is no purpose. I think the actual purpose behind taking lots of soil samples and stuff is to be seen. I think these are deliberate events that are meant to be seen by people because that fits into the layman's expectations of what space visitors will do because that's what we did when we went to the moon. We took uh, soil samples. And I think that plays into the, the subterfuge argument that we're seeing orchestrated special effects pageants, for, you know, basically. And that we're meant to interpret these as uh, visiting ETs doing their thing, you know, dispassionately among us. And when, in fact, it's something else. We're seeing a play enacted for our benefit. Do you think this play, Mac, is something that the entities are doing themselves, or are the governments engaged in this, too? Do the governments even know that we have this parallel population? Yeah, I think the entities themselves are are definitely the originators of this. I I think that they have a, a stake in this, and I think that 
they could quite possibly be behind it. As far as uh, complicity with, with the government, that's a good question. I don't know. It seems to me that it's quite possible that the government, uh, for lack of a better term, some, some governments are aware of their presence. There are some interesting reports, actually, uh, coming from World War II of encounters with uh, small people living on uh, islands that were hitherto unexplored. And uh, as an aspect of the whole crypto-terrestrial thing that I find quite interesting. And, and also another another trait that's uh, reported by people who have contacted these 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 creatures or been contacted by them or whatever. They're you know they're generally human-like, but they're often described as looking uh, Asian. The ones that are, the ones that are more or less essentially human. They, people describe them as looking Asian. You know, with you know, kind of slanted eyes and skin and whatnot. And uh, you have to wonder if maybe they are Asian originally. Maybe we're dealing with uh, and like an offshoot of human species that uh, originated in Asia. And that, that's an interesting possibility there. And and you know perhaps that's a hopeful line of, of inquiry for establishing where these people originated mm. the planet. But the, the thing about that, why would an offshoot of an Asian people become so incredibly technologically advanced? I mean, in the cases of some of these ships that have been sighted, and I'm thinking about my own experience in Caracas in 1974, where I saw something in the sky that I knew was far beyond current human technology. Just the scale of this thing was so far beyond anything we're capable of that it seems to me that the, the idea that you've got, you know, some some kind of an Asian offshoot that have, you know, become, in, in essence, a secret civilization, mm-hmm. right. that, that was a little tough for me because how would they have become so technologically advanced? Well, my, my answer to that would be maybe they're not as technologically advanced as we think they are. I get the feeling that they're actually kind of marginalized and impoverished in many respects. And they might want us to think they're more they're more advanced than they are in order to intimidate us, perhaps. And the extraterrestrial mythos, by appealing to that and making us think in terms of, of aliens from other elsewhere in the galaxy, would be a way of throwing us off the off the general scent. And I think that they are quite capable, but I don't get the impression that they are godlike beings that we might expect from arbitrarily advanced extraterrestrial aliens. I think they're limited in some capacities, and that their main asset is their ability to keep their existence secret. I think that they're actually quite fragile in some respects, and it's conceivable that someone could blow this wide open, you know. The Roswell crash is, is one candidate thing, it, it, one candidate case of an actual uh, contact event. I don't think the Roswell crash was extraterrestrial. The extraterrestrial uh, explanation doesn't really hold up, but neither does the Air Force's Project Mogul explanation. Neither neither of those mm-hmm. scenarios makes much sense. Uh, Nick Redfern, uh, his 2005 book, Body Snatchers in the Desert, he suggests that we were dealing with crashed humans in a nuclear experiment, that the people in these were actually reformed Japanese prisoners uh, used in a Japanese camp, Unit 731, which has a really disturbing and validated history. Uh, another idea is that it was a, a crypto-terrestrial crash of some kind, and this plays into the whole uh, environmental aspect of beings that are concerned about our nuclear and environmental prowess, because to some extent they're going to be dependent on us, because I think we're numerically superior to, the, to them, and I think we can view them as probably uh, as kind of uh, stage managers, perhaps implanting ideas into our society and hoping they they fare well uh, because open contact would not be an option. By by contacting us openly, that would be the kiss of death for their civilization. How so? Would we contaminate them? Would we feel a need to destroy them? 
Possibly, yeah. It might be it might be a fear reaction. I don't think we know what their ultimate goals are, although I do suspect that they need our genes. I think that they are it's kind of a strange symbiosis going on right now. I think that they need our, our genetic material from time to time because they live in such a, a compromised existence right now. They're not the dominant species on this planet. I think we are. Uh, nevertheless, I think that they are, in some respects, in some critical respects, um, are technological superiors. At least that's, this is all hypothetical, of course. Right, but, right, but of course. Right, yeah, I'm not just claiming this is the way it sure. is. And I think some people don't quite understand that. But yeah, that's, oh. that's the basic hypothesis there, is that, is that uh, I think it has some explanatory potential. I think it helps explain some of the, some of the strange, unlikely aspects of the UFO phenomenon. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Mac Tonys today, and Mac's here to talk about not Martian mysteries, but earthly mysteries and the possibilities that the entities or beings associated with UFOs are themselves occupants of this planet. Now, let's maybe go argument by argument for this entire thing. And I think part of it is the argument against this possibility would be that, gee, we've explored so much of this planet already. Where are they hiding? Are they hiding right. in Pellucidar, which was Edgar Rice Burroughs' novels of mm -hmm. a civilization beneath the surface of the Earth with a central sun instead of <laughs> a molten no, no. core and all Not that stuff? Kidding. In fact, that's one idea that's been, that's been already used to, you know, to make the whole idea seem foolish. You know, well, what's next? The hollow Earth, you know? All over again, and no, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that the Earth is hollow. You know, I'm not. That's not an option. But large subterranean habitats. Um, my challenge is, why not? You know, what's impossible about that? I think. I think that it's quite feasible. And I'm going. On, I'm going by the same data set that the advocates of the extraterrestrial hypothesis are using. People say, well, what's, what's your evidence that any of this is real? And, I, and my response is the same evidence that you're using the UFO phenomenon. I simply think that there is another more consistent explanation than aliens from outer space. That I'm using well, the same. The same observations of, of apparent non-human, intelligently controlled craft and the occupants that, that the ETH people are cite religiously. You know? Well, at this point, it's clear 
to me that everything about this topic is a theory. We don't have hard evidence really about any source of origin of these beings. And I think it's also important to note that very possibly what's really going on here is some combination of these two sources. I think that it's entirely conceivable that if we had crypto-terrestrial entities among us, that they would want to keep us confused about their origins and that they would indeed support the idea of us thinking that these things were extraterrestrial. But I want to also point out that this interdimensional theory to me is very compelling and would explain a lot of what I've read about and what I've also directly or indirectly experienced as far as some of these creatures being able to essentially dematerialize mm-hmm. and materialize on demand. Basically, they just pop out of nowhere and then pop back into nowhere. And to me, I, I, I mean, I have to say that, boy, talk about an advanced technology. That right. ESP control of human beings, which is not a subtle thing, it, again, would seem to underscore to me that these are creatures that have some ability to move around our dimensional constraints. I know that on Paul Kimball's blog, um, Mac, uh, that um, Stan Friedman, in response to um, an issue brought up by, by this theory, said, well, there's no way that these creatures could construct huge craft out I of... Well, uh, so do I. I mean, I, and, and I, I think you and I disagree for different reasons about this. Why would you disagree with that? Uh, I don't see any reason why, once a once civilization is established, uh, say, you know, a base under the ocean where they can exploit our resources right under our noses. We, you know, we know very little. Of, on, on one hand, we know a lot about our planet. Uh, on, the, on the first tank, that seems to indicate that there's no room left for, for others. But on the other hand, we know exceedingly little about uh, our oceans. We know more about the moon, the surface of the moon, than we do our own planet when it comes to large bodies of water. So once you're willing to concede that, and you, uh, once you're willing to concede that some sort of uh, presence is uh, utilizing resources in you know underground or underneath the oceans, there's lots of room and there's lots of material to work with. And why not a manufacturing plant of some kind? You know, if they're only, say, hundred years in advance of us, uh, we'd never know they were there. Okay, so if I'm a listener... They wanted us to know they were there. Right. So if I'm listening to this show, maybe I'm thinking to myself, well, I know it's not talked about in the media very often, but I have some idea that the United States and a number of other countries have a very sophisticated arsenal of nuclear submarines, the types of submarines that can stay underwater for a month, that can move under Arctic ice. Wouldn't it be conceivable that these submarines with their very sophisticated sensor arrays and communications equipment, wouldn't they encounter some evidence it's possible. of that they would and that they have? It's possible that, that they could and that both, that they could and that they have. I don't know if they have or not, but it's right. interesting to wonder what our reaction would be if the military or industry or whoever did confirm the presence of a, of a non-human species, uh, an intelligent non-human species moving, say, you know, below the oceans. So, well, you know, what a response, what would the uh, military do? Would, they, would, I mean, would there be any imperative to just come out and tell everyone, you know, what, what was going on? And I don't think so. I don't think there would be any, any more reason to tell people about the existence of, of the crypto transgels. Is there any more than there would be compelling reason to just come right out and talk about, you know, the existence of aliens visiting us, if in fact they are? And by alien, in, in this in this sense, I mean aliens from another from another planet. Right. So there seems to be little little reason to just justify just coming coming out with that information. And I don't, I don't think just because the the others in our midst are from Earth doesn't uh, ju- justify being forthright with the evidence any more than any more than you know the cosmic Watergate that you hear about. <laughs>
want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Author and commentator Mac Tonys joins us. And this time, not about Martian mysteries, but about earthly mysteries, where it's possible. The UFO occupants come from our caves, our oceans, whatever. But don't you think there's a time as we get more and more advanced that it's inevitable we're going to find out who they are and what they are? Yeah, and, and that's one idea that I think is really is really kind of uh, kind of pretentious in the sense that uh, they are having a hand in our psychosocial evolution, as as Jacques Fillet seemed to seemed to get in a way that many others don't. That they're that they're kind of steering our expectations in a way that's ultimately misdirection. But yeah, they're very well could come a time when our population is so in, so intensely huge that that we're aware of them in a more open context, and they might be steering us toward a point where contact is inevitable, perhaps, and they're steering us to a point where we can at least coexist in a, in a, in a productive manner. Where right now, I think I think the reaction would be uh, to freak out, frank, quite frankly, if we realized that we were sharing the planet with with beings, intelligent beings, and we're not the top of the food chain as we previously thought we were. Well, you just said it right there in a very revealing way. The idea that there's a food chain, and if we're not at the top of it, well, my God, who's for dinner? Which, to me, that would support the idea that, for example, maybe the military or operatives of the military and certain portions of government know about these things, but there is this thought that, well, at least with, with extraterrestrials, well, they're not here, they're on their planet, so they come here sometimes, they're not here the rest of the time, don't worry about it, versus... Oh yeah, they're here, and in fact, not only are they are they here, but and I hate to beat this one again, but they're extra-dimensional creatures, and they might be right next to you at right. any given moment. Talk about people walking around completely freaked out, right? Well, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, it's a really paranoid idea, and this, some of the resistance to the idea I think comes from that from that element of uh, paranoia. You know, it sounds like you know, it sounds delusional. You know, when you first think yeah. about it, it sounds like somebody. You know, they're here, they're here. It sounds like the guy in Invasion of the Body Snatchers running down the street screaming. I, I don't think it's quite that. Quite that. Uh, what's, what's the term? I don't think it's quite terrible. Fine. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think they're trying to invade because I don't think they want to invade. I think that if they wanted to take over, they've had their chance. They've been around for thousands and thousands of years, and uh, I think they had their easy uh, time on Earth has expired. You know, when we started developing cities and uh, developing a global infrastructure and nuclear weapons, we became a very pronounced threat. And uh, I don't think it's coincidence that the modern era of UFO science began in 1947. Of course, you have the Foo Fighters, of, you know, buzzing, buzzing uh, fighter planes and everything else during World War II. And to me, that's very suggestive of an earthly intelligence that's checking out the situation, you know, kind of like us sending a, a deep sea probe underwater to, to check out deep sea life that we couldn't otherwise see. Are they so, close think, enough to us that they could pass for us? In other words, could one I, of these crypto terrestrials walk into the corner supermarket and yeah. do his shopping or her shopping. Yeah, I like that question a lot, and I think perhaps they could. Uh, there are lots of accounts of quote-unquote aliens doing exactly that. 
passing for, for you know human wrapped up in scarves and hats and stuff and again this sounds very 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 crazy but uh, once you start thinking about it seriously and get over the initial giggle factor again why not you know what's so outrageous about that I think some could my impression of the of the crypto terrestrials is that they have kind of a hive society that their society is structured in a very specialized manner so you have some that are basically worker drones and you have some that are more human like and when you look at the, the evidence of you know some sort of hybrid program, whatever that might ultimately entail. But the sort of thing that David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins and even John Mack to some extent were investi- were in- have investigated, that indicates an interest in genetics and genetic engineering and transgenics that, that would lend itself to the creation of specialized specialized kinds of crypto terrestrials. So you've got your hairy dwarves in South America. You've got um, even some accounts of, of Bigfoot-like creatures um, might be accountable in terms of the crypto terrestrial idea in, in some way. You know, maybe we're dealing with a civilization that uh, utilizes genes very quite casually compared to us. And uh, they do so because that's it's just their secrecy, and secrecy is how they, you know, is their sustenance. If they didn't have, they didn't have that ability. I think, I think any intelligent species that's faced with a you know, suitably urgent threat is capable of coming up with some pretty ingenious solutions. Of course, at that point, one has to wonder why use craft, why have saucer-shaped craft if you were hiding. On this planet, wouldn't you just send out probes, essentially? Yeah, and in fact, I think most, I think, I'm not going to say most, but let's just say some. I think some saucer-shaped craft with the blinking mm-hmm. lights, very attention-getting, are decoys. I think that they are sent up essentially to, to misdirect us. Two incidents that come to mind are the Washington National sightings, in which we had these luminous objects over the Capitol. Uh, outracing our jets that were sighted by radar and, and visually from the ground and from the air. What point would this with the Washington Nationals serve? And then they return a week later. To me, this has a very theatric flavor. Uh, it indicates somebody trying to impress us, and by doing so, making us think in terms of the ETH. And another one is the Rendlesham landing, or, or whatever you want to call it, in England, where we have this quite remarkable object that just land, just happens to land in the midst of a sensitive uh, nuclear installation and is witnessed by lots of people. Again, this is a, an incident that seems orchestrated in the sense that the intention appears for people to see it. And lots of UFOs, lots of lesser UFO sightings have that same playful quality. It's like some, someone wanting wanting us to see it. The maneuvers in the sky, the the, uh, the light displays, etc. I think all of this ultimately reinforces our conviction that we're dealing with aliens from another planet, when in fact we might be dealing with essentially projections of some kind. Or, or maybe just, uh, you know, we, we hear all the time about hoaxers, you know, using balloons and stuff. You know, maybe, maybe they rely on rather primitive technology and, and send up some relatively low-tech devices to, to fool us. On the other hand, we could be dealing with more sophisticated uh, special effects technology, and we could be looking at uh, holograms. You know, mm-hmm. we, have, we hear all these uh, descriptions of craft dematerializing and stuff. That's very consistent with holography. Maybe, or maybe it's just, maybe it is some sort of psychic projection in some in some cases. If these beings have a have a suitably advanced science of the mind, maybe uh, inducing hallucinations and mind to mind communication isn't isn't out of the out of the picture. Maybe that's still a possibility we should consider. Of course. 
course, at that point, you'd also think that if they could do that, well, if you can warp our perception some of the time, why not just do it all of the time and essentially, right. you know, own the world? I mean, that's kind of the, the silly, well, not so silly. That's That was the whole thing about those Matrix movies. You know, you're, you're living in a consensual hallucination, which when I speak to Gene, I often think that that's indeed the case, that Gene doesn't really exist. Well, that's true, but I didn't want to admit that on the air. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're joined by Mac Tony, who's expert on Mars and expert on the paranormal, and we're talking about the CTH, which is the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. David, well, go ahead. So when we talk about these things throughout history, Mac, uh, you know, we have throughout recorded history these odd things, these these elves, apparitions, mm -hmm. the little people. Then there are the big people. Then there are the people that came from the sky. We have gods from the sky, like Quetzalcoatl. You know, we have all these things that... And I'm wondering if the uh, from the sky thing is another distraction or a way to sort of establish a, a superiority that may or may not be real. But the thing that keeps bothering me about this is that if these things wanted to control us and own us, wouldn't they just do that? To me, humans are more likely to think of themselves as very sophisticated beings, but if they had the chance to look from the outside in, maybe they'd be less impressed with who they are. And I keep thinking to myself, well, all right, if there was a, a superior race on the planet, mm -hmm. wouldn't they just out and out own us at that point? Well, maybe they do, but if they owned us and we knew it, we might fight back. 
you know, Charles Ford, you know, we are property and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe we are, but maybe the most maybe we're uh, maybe the best way to own to own a species and and utilize us for whatever they want to utilize this for. In this case, I think a likely explanation would be genetics. You know, keep them alive, keep them happy, and keep them distracted. Emphasis on distracted. Keep them in check. Don't let them blow themselves up. Hence the uh, hence the messages of uh, about the environments and the warnings about not using nuclear weapons, which is all very consistent when you read uh, abduction narratives. Right. So that's consistent. I think that's one ex- potentially explainable aspect that the, the CTH addresses in a way that the ETH really doesn't. So what has to happen for more people to analyze this possibility? What has to happen for the UFO field as such? And I find it hard to address it as a field. It seems more like a bunch of... Yeah, it's like a field. Yeah, it's... For lack of a better term, it's a field, but... Right, right. I hear about the UFO community, and I always kind of... What exactly are they talking about? Is it a community, a field, or a mess? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> it's kind of a diaspora, actually, the UFO diaspora, but that doesn't sound very catchy, does it? You know, well, I, I, scholarly to refer to right. as the UFO research community or whatever. It's a bunch of outsiders but What has to happen, in. I think, first of all, we, we just need to become a little more theoretically flexible. BTH has, has a lot going for it. It's not an invalid theory, and it's not mutually incompatible with other theories, whether that be the interdimensional notion of, of Jacques Vallée, the, the super spectrum of John Keel, or the uh, or the crypto terrestrial idea, which is a little more a little more nuts and bolts. In many ways, the crypto terrestrial idea is, little, is kind of a compromise between the more metaphysical, mythological uh, argument made by Jacques Vallée and the nuts and bolts of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, wherein which we're dealing with uh, you know physical physical craft and physical beings that are more or less understand in terms of human psychology. It's kind of a reconciliation between the two in that, yes, we are dealing with, for lack of a better term, aliens, but they're not necessarily from, from outer space. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we need to shed some of our, um, I think we're kind of addicted, I think ufologists, some ufologists, rather, are have grown up with the, with the ETH and it's become dogma, even though it's a theory, even though there's still, even though we still can't prove it. It's nevertheless, it, ironically enough, it's become it's become dogma. And it's become kind of heretical to uh, venture any other explanation to account for the UFO phenomenon's behavior throughout history. Well, this has been the problem all along. That from the very first, as soon as people started talking about UFOs in the 1950s, they said, "Hey, spaceships." Yes, that's it. Spaceships. It started out as spaceships. Major like Donald Kehoe talked about spaceships. Yo, oh, Kehoe was a big, was obviously, yeah, a big advocate of, of the ETH, and, and not without good reason. I'm not bashing advocates of the existential hypothesis by any means, because it's a valid hypothesis. It has, it has some explanatory potential, which is which is what a hypothesis should should have. But I don't think it is the only one. I think that the cryptoterrestrial hypothesis has it at least as much as the ETH. It's kind of newfangled. I think I think some people don't like it because they think it's in some way kind of a return to kind of more nebulous. Theory. Theorizing. You know, Belay was unable to, to prove his idea to the satisfaction of the world. And But at the time that he was advancing his, his ideas about, uh, you know, fairies and elves and inter, you know, interdimensional and interdimensional presence on the planet. Since then, incidentally, though, we've made uh, lots of advances forward in, this, in theoretical physics, and it looks more and more likely that we do inhabit a multiverse with uh, parallel worlds and things. So the notion that we're sharing dimensional space with another intelligence is, holds up pretty well. Also make it a lot more difficult for us to find them if they yes. have some way of going into this alternate dimension. Now, I have to tell you that a long time ago, I was 18 years 
old, and myself and a fellow UFO researcher, Alan Greenfield, who's still around. He still writes books with kind of a Gnostic feel to them. Anyway, Alan and I were sitting up for one of those all-night sessions, and we did not have any of those beverages or smoking <laughs> things that are kind of Sure fun. you didn't. No, uh-huh. we didn't. I was very, very straight uh-huh. in those days. I learned sure later. Sure you were. <laughs> I learned later. The joy. Forget it. Anyway, seriously, we were talking all night, and then he had a copy of a book with him, The Incomplete Enchanter, which is about a character, a fantasy book about a character who goes into an alternate universe where the forces of magic are in dominance as opposed to our quote-unquote physical universe. And we said, gee, it's interesting how UFOs seem to blink in and blink out and defy what we know as the laws of physics, and maybe we're jumping the gun to believe that these things are alien visitors because we do not know yet of any place out there that harbors alien life. There could be millions or billions of planets that do, but we don't know what they are yet. Even with the Mars situation where they have water on the surface doesn't mean we're going to find Martians there, although that's another topic. Maybe we will. So maybe they do come from someplace near us, just separated by this dimensional doorway. And we took a little grief for that because people didn't want to hear that their favored theory was wrong. Or maybe, maybe I think I think it's very likely, actually, that we're sharing the galaxy with lots of civilizations. And maybe they originate in space-time as we know it and, and make the revolution in physics that allows them to access uh, hyperspace, for lack of a better word. So it's, it becomes very hard to, to distinguish exactly what we're dealing with, extraterrestrials or, or you know, hyper terrestrials or, or whatever you know maybe maybe we're dealing with with a species you know maybe a thousand years more in advance of us and but they're able to manipulate physics in a way that they can blink in and out of existence by accessing other dimensions so isn't they're not mutually exclusive well it saves a lot of fuel doesn't it yeah that, yeah that's one that's one incentive to to do this kind of uh, cool uh, physics is to, is to open up you know, a wormhole or something. And, right. You know, well, if I start talking about that, though, David's going to rag on me about quoting science fiction concepts. So I won't. Yeah. Think about some mechanism that allows you to go from one place to another. It could be a craft. You know, you push a button and it, you know, kind of tilts on its side or something, whatever, and goes into this other dimension. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Before we go too far into other dimensions, this dimension is called the Paracast. And with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking to Mac Tonys about CTH, the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis that says there is another civilization coexisting with our own, maybe even on this plane of existence right here. They could be in caves, they could be in mountains, they could be under the sea. But for heaven's sake, there's so much of this planet we have not explored. Maybe they have really, really far and wide to hide themselves from us, at least for now. I just heard in my mind the the music from Octopus's Garden. I'd like to be under the sea. I'm sorry, I'll shut up now. (laughs) I had to interject some silliness there. But I think ultimately it's probably accurate to say that if someday in our lifetimes the, the truth 
of the source of a lot of this phenomenon is revealed. It's going to prove to be perhaps one notch weirder than crypto-terrestrial. I think that ultimately the, the way that we parse this whole thing, the way that we try to interpret flying saucers and cigar-shaped ships that are really big and, and uh, these strange beings, the way that we're trying to, to view them is through the filter of science fiction, is through the mechanisms of media, and that ultimately what we're really going to find is that there is some very intense spiritual component to this that it evades us right now because it's almost as if everybody is not only completely vested in their agenda, but also everybody's got blinders on. You know, ufologists don't want to hear anything about spirituality, spirituality or religion. It's like, no, just keep that out of my way. That's not science. Um, people who are New Agers, well, they don't bother themselves with scientific realities because, well, man, we don't know anything about the nature of the universe. Well, here, have a toke of this. It just seems like you know, everybody gets wrapped up in their in their little thread. And maybe, Mac, this is the position that I hope people like yourself will take in this, that you are the meta-researchers, that you're looking at perhaps bigger pictures and bigger realities crossing these fields. Because, you know, one thing that's clear to me is that we are talking about different aspects of the nature of reality. These things seem to all coexist with one another. They're all happening concurrently. So, you know, when you look at it from that point of view, it seems to me like it should be possible to start to draw lines between these things. Maybe these creatures are coexisting with us and maybe they are an artifact of human emotional energy. They, they seem very interested in human emotions. Yeah, I wonder what, right? So, you know, why would that be the case? Yeah, that is interesting. The, the, you know, I have all these accounts of people, you know, this very, very intense, inquisitive interest in emotions. And, of course, that's usually ascribed to extraterrestrials. You know, they don't have emotions. They've lost them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole dying world motif is kind of prevalent in abduction literature, you know, where you have species that's uh, lost something. You know, it's gained something in, in the technological realm, but it's lost some some essential spiritual aspect or something. Well, that's the whole, of course, concept of the, of the contactee movement. Yeah, but that's yeah. all about psychological projection. You know, a, a species sure. from a dying planet, our dying planet, yeah. uh, a species right. who's losing its emotional resonance. Oh, that would be us. Right. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> I think it's, that the, the, the intelligence, whether it's extraterrestrial or crypto-terrestrial or interdimensional, utilizes science fiction imagery. I think it, um, it plays into our own personal biased associations when it comes to the future. I think it uh, has a very, a very studious grasp of, of what we what we think is down the pike and shows us what we expect. And so we have this kind of mythological feedback loop. So it's hard to distinguish what started off as our own creative invention and what's being shown back to us by whatever we're interacting with. So it's reflecting who and what we are. So yeah. say in I think, I the think 19... It uses sure. the mythological syntax of our culture, wherever we are at the time, as a way, as a way of communi communicating with us. Because it's quite possible that if, and I'm kind of diverging from the crypto-terrestrial idea per se right now, but if we're dealing with, well, like, well, like, well, like Jacques Vallée's multiverse, where we're dealing with something that is quite possible beyond human understanding. It uses a, a mythological vocabulary uh, simply so we can at least understand it. Well, certainly in ancient times, then, they come here and masquerade as gods. Yeah, so you have gods or, or fairies or, or eccentric human inventors. 
in the case of the airship signings or or aliens, and that seems to be the latest one. You don't we don't know whether this is something that that is put in place by the intelligence. Uh, intentionally, or if it's simply the human mind's way of, of dealing with a stimulus that's so weird that it would simply not make sense to us unless we mm-hmm. couch it in familiar terms. So it could be a psych- basically a psychological defense mechanism to interpret this visitation by whomever. Right. And, now, and, you're working on a book on this subject, I gather. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could you tell us kind of where you've, <laughs> what conclusions you've gone through up to this point in addition to the ones you've voiced it's so far? It's not done right in the book yet. What are you asking for conclusions? <laughs> what the well, hell is that? Progress report, my friend. Okay. It's obviously, it's a theoretical book. I'm not claiming any, any sure answers. Basically, the book is is a reexamination of the UFO phenomenon and you know the various subsets of the, of the phenomenon, such as contactees, uh, abductees, some some famous sightings, and just the behavior of the occupants, close encounters, and just reexamining it through the eyes of this new hypothesis and and just kind of and challenging it and and kind of pointing out where the extraterrestrial hypothesis falls short, in my opinion, where, the, where I think the CTH makes more sense. You know concepts like you know the misdirection and, and stealth and, uh, and and folklore. And I think I think the ETH, as as we currently know it, is is we always hear about the modern era of UFOs starting in the late 40s, and a lot of nuts and bolts ufologists exclude everything before that, and you know, that makes it very that makes it very easy to interpret the phenomenon as something uh, relatively new, something like uh, you know aliens. Oh, okay, they arrived here and maybe during World War II or and whatever, and are engaged in some in some sort of uh, survey of our planet. But uh, that's, that couldn't be farther from the truth. If we're dealing with something from outer space, then it's got some other agenda besides that. And I think it's more likely that we're not dealing with something from outer space. We're dealing with something from right here that would prefer us to think we're from outer space. That's that's the general theme of the book. And I think I think I draw some some reasonable inference inferences that have some ability to shed light on some of the more quizzical elements that that, that the ETH generally sweeps under the rug because they're inconvenient. Well, I know speaking for the two of us, you've got two people here who are very much looking forward to that book, Mac. Well, thank you. That's I, I'm looking forward to getting it finished. It's it's been a lot of it's been it's a book that's very fun to write because it, it, it it's it's reached the point now where it's where it's writing itself, you know, and uh, that's always a good place to be. Absolutely. What's interesting to me also is that I hope it will start a new discussion because it looked like, to me at least, that discussions of possible alternate explanations for UFOs got rather popular in the 60s, late 60s, and the 70s, and kind of died out in the 80s. We went back to ETH, and now maybe it's time for it to return. Yeah, I'd like to to see ETH has, you know, it's it's, it's a valid hypothesis, and there's nothing wrong with it, but uh, I'd like to see some fresh thinking start. And yeah, it just, if this book can help stir up some discussion, I'm not claiming that this is this is it, that we, you know, the answers at last or at hand. I'm simply uh, just making some, some, some propositions that we, you know, address this and, and, and look at some evidence in a, in a new light. Well, obviously, it's also the case of Occam's razor here, if UFOs are real. Yeah. Where, yeah. Why posit that they traveled 12 or 100 light years to get here when they could travel 100 miles? Right. It's a little right. bit easier. It kind of depends on, on uh, Occam's razor. is interesting because it, it kind of assumes that we already 
know enough about the universe to to know what is more likely. In some areas, I'm not sure we do. But and also, there's, there's been the observation by Occam's Razor is that uh, you're looking for the most likely answer, or the most excuse me, the simplest answer is what you're looking for with Occam's Razor. But science isn't looking for the simplest answer necessarily. It's looking for the right answer, and the simplest answer isn't always the correct one. So that's, right. you know, that's worth bearing in mind, too. Well, this if extends that... a little bit beyond not being real. You know, This is saying they're real, so there's one extension already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's certainly not the null hypothesis. I think if I have any conclusions, you know, I try to remain as agnostic as possible, and I'm pretty naturally agnostic when it comes to stuff like this, in the sense that I'm willing to entertain multiple ideas and hold them all in a state of suspension. I have to think that people will be in a state of suspension when they hear this theory, especially if it contradicts the one that they've held. But to us, that makes no difference because I think it's time we start exploring rather than assuming what's yeah, real and what isn't. Yeah, ETH is, is productive, but I, mean, I think I think I think we're, uh, whether this book or my or the stuff I've been posting has any effect on it or not. I think we're overdue for kind of a renaissance and just start thinking about the phenomenon. It's, it's I think the fact that we're making some progress in the, in the theoretical realm when it comes to uh, other dimensions and parallel worlds is good news for ufology. We've well, still got people who just really don't want to think about that. We, they're still committed to, you know, nuts and bolts spacecraft from other planets. If they're committed to a specific point of view, I say we sweep them out of the way because um, <laughs> that doesn't doesn't get us any closer to understanding the reality well, of this. Let's and let's keep let's keep what's logical and uh, and sure and get the dog yeah, but, out of the way. No, absolutely. Let, let's get vested interest out of the way and let's let the only vested interest be an actual understanding of this stuff. At this point, with just the past year delving into this realm into the sandbox i have really been astounded at the incredible venom that's slung around in this world and and you know people it's like they do this for some perverse pleasure and what they're not interested in doing is actually understanding what's really going on regardless of their belief system and and i'll i guess i'll close out this segment by saying as i've said many times in the show before belief is cheap i want to know I think understanding is what we really want. You know, belief is just not very useful ultimately in understanding the universe. You can believe that a chicken is God. Me, I believe it's actually a turkey, but there you have it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Mac Tonys, on Thank the Paracast. Thanks, Mac. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Coming up next on the PowerCast, we'll be hearing from Kevin D. Randall, who has done extensive research, of course, into the Roswell UFO case. He'll talk about that and some of his other favorite cases in our next segment of the PowerCast. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 
250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsored button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog place your order today. We'd like to hear from you. If you want to contact Gene and David, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the Paracast and visit our spirited discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them you heard their ad on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. So, Kevin Randall, coming up, it'll be 60 years since Roswell's supposedly occurred. Looking at the Roswell situation after all this time, what are your feelings? What do you think has been learned and what do you think we should learn and what do you think we can't learn? Well, the simple answer to the question is that Roswell involved the crash of an alien spacecraft. And I think that that is is still a valid point. What's happened is that it became very, very famous, and everybody and his brother decided to sign on to the Roswell case. A lot of people coming forward with their tales of what they saw, what they did, and how they were involved in Roswell. And we have learned in the last seven or eight years that many of those people weren't telling us the truth. Hmm. So that we've had to revise the Roswell case. And I was to the point of saying we're back to where we were in 1978 when Jesse Marcel came out and said that he was there picking up the pieces of, a, of an alien spacecraft or a craft from another planet, extraterrestrial spacecraft. But going back and looking at some of the testimonies, we still have some good testimony that suggests that creatures were recovered. We still have some good testimony that whatever fell there was extremely exotic. And we have some very good testimony that the government moved rapidly to hide that information. We've also lost some of the most exciting of the testimonies. Frank Kaufman, for example, talking about how he was involved in the disinformation campaign and that he was involved in the center of the, the whole story, turns out not to be true. I mean, I was a big proponent of Frank Kaufman. I believed what he was telling us. I now don't believe that he was involved at all. We had Gerald Anderson coming forward talking about how he was out on the plains of San Augustine with Barney Barnett. I 
don't believe Gerald Anderson is telling us the truth about his involvement. So we've lost some of the exciting testimonies that talked about government suppression of the information and threats, but we still retain some very good testimonies that lead us to the extraterrestrial. So the Roswell case is kind of evolved from just Jesse Marcel seeing strange metallic debris to the idea that bodies were recovered, alien creatures were recovered. We lost some of that testimony, but now we have other better testimony. From who? Who are the, now the most credible witnesses, in your opinion, Kevin? Some of them are secondhand. Beverly Bean, for example, her father, Melvin Brown, was a sergeant at Roswell in 1947 and talked about to family members how he had been one of the people brought out of uh, Roswell for guard duty in the field. There are a number of additional people who have talked about this, MPs who were on the scene in Roswell in 1947. One of the most interesting things was one of these MPs, a guy named Leo Spear, didn't know anything himself, and he said that when his friends had come back to the base after being gone for 24 hours or so, they were talking about this flying saucer, and he thought they were full of beans <laughs> and didn't believe them until the newspaper article came out the next day in the, in the Roswell Daily Record saying that the flying saucer had crashed. And so Leo Spear didn't know anything himself, but was able to corroborate some of what his friends had said. One of the others is Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal. Didn't tell us much. Clearly was the provost marshal, top cop on the base at the time. Didn't know a lot, but mentioned to me personally that the craft was extraterrestrial. Told the family a little bit more about the bodies that he was involved in. And there was other people who came forward and talked to him about that as well. Lewis Rickett, who was the counterintelligence uh, NCO at the time, told us quite a bit about that sort of thing as well. So we've got those sorts of testimonies that are very, very good from very, very credible people. People we searched out, people that didn't come forward telling us about these stories, but people who we had searched out at the time. At this point, we're getting to a time in history when it's getting really difficult to address anybody who was actually involved in a first-person case because we're now so far away from when this happened that isn't it true that most of the good witnesses have passed on? I'm not sure it's true that most of them have passed on. A great number of them certainly have. I mm -hmm. mean, it would be great to be able to, to interview Jesse Marcel Sr. now in today's environment because there's questions about his testimony that have developed uh, in the last 10 or 15 years long after he died, which he probably could answer for us very, very easily. We, we have some of that. The people who were at Roswell in 1947 are now in their 80s, late 70s, early 80s. So it would be nice to get these stories on tape. And I know the Fund for UFO Research has done a great deal of getting video record of the testimonies and there's been a number of other projects where they've gotten people to speak on audio tape. I, I have audio and video tapes of a large number of the witnesses, some of who have, have since passed away. So, so you're right, we've lost a number of the witnesses, but there are still some people out there that we can interview that may be able to provide us with a little bit additional information. On a recent episode of the Paracast, we had Jesse Marcel Jr. on the show, by the way, giving his reminiscences of of what happened when he was a child. And yeah, he seemed very credible. One of the things that we always wonder about, Kevin, are people's motivations in talking about this topic. Uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. came on the show, and granted, he was young when this all happened, and we took that into account, but his memories seem very vivid, they seem very clear, and he feels certain that he handled material that was not of this planet. In talking to him, uh, he seemed like a very sincere, very honest person, and it's always hard to tell what someone's really 
saying, but Gene and I both felt that he was completely believable in, in talking about his experience. Yeah. I've met him a number of times. We've had some long conversations, and I think we have a, a little bit of a different relationship than most uh, investigators and, and witnesses have since we're both military officers. We're both members of the National Guard have both deployed to Iraq as members of the National Guard. So we have a little bit of a, of a bond there that I think most people don't have. And I've seen nothing from him to suggest that what he's telling us is not true. I'll look at it and, uh, and I'll say with all honesty that memory are altered as we access them throughout our life, that sure. we sometimes change the memory without realizing we've, we've done it, that we alter it in some fashion. But I've seen nothing to suggest that Jesse Marcel isn't basically telling us a story that is grounded in reality, that his father went out and picked up this strange debris, he brought it home, Jesse had an opportunity to look at it, and he remembers pretty well what he, what he saw and handled because it was so unusual. I have no doubt that he's telling us the truth. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Kevin D. Randall, who's author of numerous books and papers about UFOs. And now we're kind of bringing everyone up to date with the Roswell incident. So let's look at some of the more compelling testimonies. In addition, of course, to the Jesse Marcel thing, what other areas of testimony do you think are significant? Let me ask you one question here, because we had William Burns, the co-author of The Day After Roswell. What is your opinion about Colonel Corso. Unfortunately, I don't believe his story. There's gaps in it. Uh, interestingly, again, while we were preparing to move into Iraq, we spent three months in uh, at Fort Riley, Kansas, where Corso was was stationed when he allegedly saw the bodies. But looking at that story, it just it makes no sense uh, at all about how he happened to see the bodies. There are things that he said about his work in in the military that simply are not true. The, the book itself said he, he was a, a colonel. He was, in fact, a lieutenant colonel. And when people quizzed him on that, he said, well, I thought I was promoted to colonel in the reserves. His records don't reflect that. In, in my own case, when my first UFO book, the UFO casebook, was published, it, it had me listed as being retired from the U.S. Air Force. And that resulted from the editor seeing a signature block of mine that said USAFR, meaning U.S. Air Force Reserve, he thought the arm meant retired. retired. So he published that on the, on the cover of the book. So if Colonel Corso had said, uh, well, no, that was a mistake the publisher made. I'm actually a lieutenant colonel. We'd all say, well, you know, that's the way the publishers are. They don't understand these things military. But Corso went to the point of saying, no, no, I was promoted to colonel in the reserve, and that's simply not true. I've seen tape of him saying that he commanded the White Sands Missile Range. You can go online, you can see a listing of all the commanders at the White Sands Missile Range, and he's not among them. He did command uh, at a 
aircraft battalion that was stationed probably at Fort Bliss, and if you've been down in the area, you've seen the White Sands Missile Range and Fort Bliss a military reservation sort of run into each other, so that if he if he said, you know, I commanded a battalion out there, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but that's not what he said. He said, I commanded out there. I, I, was, I was the commander out there, and that's simply not the case. So what Corso has said, things that are in his book that have proven not to be true, and it, and it sort of demonstrates a real lack of understanding of the UFO phenomena. There's a picture that he publishes in his book that almost everybody in the UFO field knows is a fake. It was taken in near Riverside, California, and it's basically a hubcap of, a, of I think it's a 1935 Ford thrown in the air and photographed. The guy who took the photograph said it was a fake. Of course, when his book publishes it as if it's true, my thinking is if he was who he said he was, he would be aware of the authenticity of that photograph, and he wasn't. That tells me something about his credibility. So unfortunately, I just don't have a good feeling for Colonel Corso's work and what he can tell us about the Roswell case. Well, that raises a larger question here. What was the motive? You want me to speculate? I will tell you two things. A, that uh, there was a monetary... Uh, reason for doing it, and secondly, it brought the spotlight to him, and and I think he felt that the spotlight had unfairly passed him by. So he was, he was at the center of the spotlight for quite a long time, and that's a very powerful draw. People will tell you all kinds of tales simply to have the spotlight dragged to them. I mean, you see it every day on on the, the talk shows, people admitting to the most incredible things simply because it got them to be on television, people making up the most incredible things because it gets them on television. I, I think that's got to be the motivation. His career was pretty lackluster. And, 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 I mean, you can point in my career and say pretty much the same thing. It's pretty lackluster. I've done nothing spectacular in my military career, but... That's the way. That's the breaks of the game sometimes. But you're not claiming you did anything spectacular. No, I I, I did my job as best I could. I was rewarded uh, for doing that job, and and unfortunately, I was never in a position to shine like some other people. Like Audie Murphy was in a position to shine during World <laughs> War II, for example. I've never had an opportunity to shine that way. That's just the breaks of the game. Well, hopefully, you never found yourself in quite that kind of a combat situation because the uh, Murphy case is uh, maybe unparalleled in military history. Kevin, I have a personal question for you. How did you get involved in being interested in UFOs? Do you have a personal experience from when you were younger that motivated you to look into this field? How did you get pulled into this? I always blame my mother. She was a fan <laughs> of science fiction. Uh-oh. The yeah. mother problem. Yes, yes. And of course, science fiction deals with alien races and alien species coming to Earth and interstellar flight and interplanetary flight and all of that sort of thing. So it's not a large step from science fiction into the realm of UFOs. And so I think the initial interest was the science fiction aspect of it, and it expanded into the UFO field. And, and that's one of the things people say about me. Well, you can't trust what Randall says because he writes science fiction. And I look at the list of the science fiction writers of America, the, about the only organization I belong to, and you'll see in there an awful lot of the writers of science fiction are actual scientists who work in lots of different fields and in lots of very prestigious 
places and universities, and yet they have the avocation of science fiction writers. So I don't think that's a real problem, but I, I, I blame my mother for my interest in UFOs. Did so you ever see anything yourself or have an experience? Nothing that I, that was of any real interest to anybody. Uh, as a teenager, I had a, I had a friend who was also interested in UFOs, and we had, had lived out in the Denver area, and there was an organization known as the Denver UFO Society, which at the time they claimed to be the longest-running UFO organization. And I looked into them uh, 15 years ago, and they were still operating. So they're a very long-running organization. And we were out at some kind of an outing on a ranch uh, south of Denver, and we saw a light fly over had tracking from north to south as opposed to east to west where most satellites were at the time. And once it was overhead, it flashed once and then continued on and disappeared. And I have no idea what it was, but it was something very high in the sky and could easily have been a satellite. Well, that's better than I have, I'll tell you. David, however, has regaled us with some very interesting stories. Let me ask you before we drift on to other topics with regard to Roswell, all the things that have arisen as side issues like the MJ-12 documents, where do you stand on those things today? MJ-12, I'm afraid, because of the lack of providence, because of some of the uh, problems with the initial documents, as outlined by Peter Titel, who is a question documents expert, suggests to me that the MJ-12 documents were uh, created, I, I believe, by people inside the UFO community, again, to further their own interest and their own fame inside the UFO community. I don't, I don't see anything in MJ-12 that is particularly spectacular or particularly authentic. But as a side issue, you take a look at uh, Robert Sabacher, who came out in the, in the 1980s and talked about his sort of tangential communications with some of the people involved in the research of the crash spacecraft. And there I think you know, we've, we've got something that's very, very interesting and very substantial. So we have a scientist who said, yeah, I, I knew a little bit about this, but I didn't get really involved in it. And on the other side of the coin with MJ-12, we have an awful lot of stuff coming out that is fraudulent and admittedly fraudulent. And I think everyone who studies MJ-12 from, from Stan Friedman to the woods will agree that some of the documentation clearly is fraudulent. It's just they believe that some of the documents are authentic. I believe they're all all to be fraudulent. The documents that they accept that Friedman has talked about on our show and elsewhere, what about them do you consider to be fraudulent? If you look at the Truman memo attached to the Eisenhower <laughs> briefing, for example, you've got a signature that is clearly from another document, meaning cut and paste. Uh, I think the Woods have said, well, Harry Truman sometimes used an automatic pen where he could sign four documents at once, but they've never found the other two documents, which is interesting. And it's, and it's a unique signature of Truman because there's a little hesitation mark in the H that's normally not there. Peter Titel says, and, and, and those who have researched Truman say, that as he crossed his the T, for example, in Truman, it usually made it into the body of the text. Or let me let me rephrase that. It, it made it into the body of the text. Always, they have not found a legitimate Truman document where it has not made it into the body of the text, with the exception of the document attached to MJ-12. And Peter Titel says, if you look at that signature block closely, you can see where it's been altered slightly so that the, the stroke on the T is not a, a, a good solid line, but it's been modified slightly to remove evidences of it touching the text. So Peter Titel says the document is fake. I have to agree with it. And if we look at the Eisenhower briefing document itself, it was 
written to conform to the, the Roswell case as it existed at the time the document was released, not as we understand it today, so that the evidence that we have moves beyond the Eisenhower briefing document. And you would think that a document prepared for the president or president-elect would be accurate. This document clearly is not accurate as we understand the Roswell case. And none of the very technical aspects of it, the, the tabs, have ever surfaced. And those would be extremely difficult to face. We'd like to hear from you. If you want to contact Gene and David, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the Paracast and visit our spirited discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them you heard their ad on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will, too. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Kevin Randall, longtime UFO investigator and author. And right now we're dissecting the MJ-12 documents. Now, that's an interesting point here, that the MJ-12 documents appear to adhere to the UFO belief system then. So what's different about the Roswell case today that diverges from that particular point in time? Uh, I think they talk about, I think, two separate locations, and it's it's pretty clear there's, there's more than two sites where this, as this thing broke up. Uh, the, the Brazel Ranch site, of course, which was mostly metallic debris. Then there's a couple of other sites that suggest something happened there. Not out on the plains of San Augustine, but, but around the Roswell area. Uh, and I, I'm discounting the Frank Kaufman site, the Jim Ragdale site, and that. But there's good evidence there's at least three locations. Uh, General Exxon, for example, suggested there was more than one site. So that's one thing. The other thing that's interesting and, 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 and Stan has never really answered this question for me, is if MJ-12 is real, then how can you accept a crash on the plains of San Augustine because it's not mentioned in the MJ-12 documents? Why would that be left out? You're creating a briefing for the president to tell him about the situation as it, as it existed in 1947. Clearly, if you believe something came down on the plains of San Augustine, why is that not mentioned in the document? And in fact, Stan once challenged me to find proof that nothing happened on the plains of San Augustine, so as a joke, I sent him the MJ-12 document because it wasn't mentioned. <laughs> and he did seem to understand the joke. I thought it was hilarious myself. And then the other thing, it talks about another crash uh, in the Del Rio area of Texas in December of 1950, I believe. And the best evidence that we can find is that case is a hoax. There's, there's really nothing of a UFO nature that crashed in the Del Rio area in 1950. So you've got information 
in the MJ-12 document that is fraudulent. Now, why would, if you're creating a document for the president and you have access to all the inside information because clearly you're talking about Roswell, you've created all these wonderful tabs of, of the expert testimony about what they found as they studied the, the debris and the, and the bodies, and yet you have this case that pretty well has been established as a hoax now. So why would that be in there? That, that you know, suggests to me that it's, that it's not authentic. And, and finally, the real key here is there is no provenance for the documents. Where did they come from? They appear at Jamie Chandra's home on 35-millimeter film in the, in the 1980s. But we don't know where they came from. And if you look at any text on forgeries and that sort of thing, you find out one of the things they always say in there is that many cases of forgery, there is no way to get to the original document. You have a copy or a photograph of a document, but you don't have the original document so that you can't check the paper. You can't check the ink. You can't check a lot of stuff that you could check if you had the original document. So there's always some conveyance or contrivance there to keep you from getting to the original source of the document. That is a real stumbling block for MJ-12. And Stan knows that, and, and Stan and I have discussed that uh, a number of times, and he's well aware that that's a real hindrance for MJ-12, and, and, he's, and he admits that. Well, there's one thing that I always thought made it into an inside joke, that it is including on the MJ-12 list of members Donald Menzel, okay, the well-known UFO critic. Now, I think the way he acted in interviews I had seen, he looked like he was an absolute fanatic on the subject of presenting his disbelief. And to then think that he's a member of this organization that would show that they know UFOs are real, I thought that was one big inside joke. Yeah, maybe that's your tip-off. And I think you're right on that. And there is no evidence that Menzel had any sort of secret belief that UFOs were real or secret knowledge that UFOs were real. He was rabid on that, and if you read his book and his explanations, sometimes they just fall apart. And I'm thinking back to Clyde Tombaugh, who we used to be able to say discovered the planet Pluto, and now have to say he discovered the dwarf planet Pluto. Uh, <laughs> Poor Clyde, Clyde is now jumping or, or spinning it around in his grave. Yeah. Well, is it dwarf uh, planet or planetoid? I think it's planetoid, right? No, it's a dwarf planet. Dwarf planet, okay. Dwarf oh. planet. There's like three or four dwarf planets. Uh, Circe's is one, and what, used to, what they used to call Xena, and I forget the, the official name of it now, that, which is what precipitated all that nonsense. But Clyde Tombaugh had a UFO sighting, and the, the Center for UFO Studies has the actual original uh, report. I always thought about copying, the, copying it and putting the copy back in, in the files and keeping the original, but I do have a copy of, of his report where Clyde Tombaugh has a, a UFO sighting, and Donald Menzel explains it. And Clyde Tombaugh says, no, well, who are you going to believe, Donald Menzel, the Harvard astronomer, or Clyde Tombaugh? who was also an astronomer of, of some note, who was actually there and made the observations. Well, obviously, you believe Tombaugh, not being fooled by some atmospheric phenomenon. So Menzel was rabid, and, 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 and when all else failed, the sighting, whatever it might be, was a hoax. If he couldn't explain it as some normal phenomenon or some unusual phenomenon, then, then he retreated, well, that's obviously a hoax, even if there was no evidence of a hoax. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data.
Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. We're talking to Kevin Rendell. And we're talking about, right now we're just starting off with Roswell and talking about a few other subjects. But I wanted to ask you one thing before we progress with anything else. And what that is, is that on this book that was written against the Roswell incident, which of course is the one from Cal Korf. What do you think about that? Oh, not much, not often. (laughs) It's full of half-truths. It's full of misrepresentations. It's rabidly anti-Roswell. I don't know why PSYCOP, if they are who they claim to be, which is looking for uh, legitimate investigations claims of the paranormal. I don't know why you have to become so rabid about it. I don't know why they would publish a book like that that, that you can demonstrate over and over again is full of half-truths. I mean, some of the things he says about me and some of the things he's published about our interview with, with uh, General Exxon, for example, just do not withstand any scrutiny. He's just absolutely livid about what Exxon told us. But if you take a look at what Exxon told us, everything that we put in our book, Exxon said. We didn't manipulate the, the interview anyway. When I write these things, I always try to include all the information so that the reader can make up his or her mind what he or she wants to believe. I don't write it from the point of view of a debate, which is I'm going to argue the point Roswell is extraterrestrial, and if I have information that suggests otherwise, I'm going to leave it out. I write from the point of view that here is the information I have gathered, and to best of my knowledge, this information is true, and here's all aspects of it. And that's why some of the skeptics who write against us and, and some of the things that Cal Corp was able to put in his book, he knew is because I published him. I have a letter from General Exxon to me privately that he quotes from. Now, how would Cal Corp know that unless I was honest and open about the letter? What the letter says, I didn't misquote him. Uh, Exxon says in the letter, I, you know, he thinks we attach too much importance to what he said, but he's not denying he said it. And what he's telling us is that the Roswell crash was extraterrestrial, and he knows it because he was at Wright Field at the time, and people he knew at Wright Field were involved in the analysis of the debris, and he knew about the bodies coming into there. So he's not denying that he said those things. So what's the problem? It just seems like in the UFO field, Kevin, people stake out a position, and they defend that position in complete avoidance of any real hard fact. And what's unfortunate about this is that, in reality, we're talking about one of the greatest mysteries that mankind has ever faced, and trying to get to an understanding of the truth behind it, it's almost as if we can't leave our egos out. You know, people stake out a position and say, it's got to be this, and they're willing to fight it, regardless of what evidence is provided, regardless of what comes out. Do you think there's any way that we can try to get to the point where we are searching for actual, objective truth, if there is such a thing? The problem is that's, that's the way it is everywhere. And it doesn't matter what intellectual endeavor you might be engaged in. It doesn't matter what political party you might belong to. There comes a point where 
for whatever reason, you're not willing to listen to what the other person is saying, even if that person may have a legitimate point. And we see this endlessly. And you talk about some people in the UFO field or evidence. The best example I can think of without naming names or getting anybody really angry is Frank Kaufman. Here's a guy that told us this marvelous story of being involved on the inside, that he had been trained in intelligence, that he had been a master sergeant in the Army, and all these wonderful things. If his story is true, well, the arguments about Roswell are over because this is the inside information. After Frank died, uh, a number of people, including uh, Mark Rodiger and Don Schmidt and Tom Carey, were at Kaufman's house, and Juanita Kaufman asked him to look at some documents he had because she wanted to make sure all his contractual obligations had been fulfilled, that, that something wasn't being missed since he had died. And what they found was his original discharge papers from the Army, which said that he was a staff sergeant, not a master sergeant, that his training had been in administration. There is no record of any sort of intelligence training in his background. And they found the forged documents, the real document that he had and the faked one that he had. So it became clear that Frank Coffin was not telling the truth, and it became clear that Frank Coffin was making everything up for the draw of the spotlight, for the fun of having a great practical joke, for the money that he was making. And I know that there was any number of interviews that he did that he was paid for, so he made some hmm. money on the deal. But we know that he's not telling the truth, but I still get people arguing with me about, well, maybe Frank Coffin was an agent of disinformation, or maybe Frank Coffin really knew something and he was trying to lead you guys astray. No, Frank Coffman didn't know anything. He was making it all up from, from the word go, and there's no way to salvage anything he told us. And yet, even though we know that he wasn't telling the truth, there are people who still want to believe, well, something he told us must be true. It's very I frustrating. To, I don't know how to fight that. Yeah, that's incredibly frustrating. Meanwhile, as we move back through the history of UFO experiences and sightings, I'm, I've noticed I've been reading uh, your um, your blog, A Different Perspective, Kevin, and uh, like me, and, and, you've become... And you'd a, like to give the, the, the location of it? At, at, at it would <laughs> be kevinrendell.blogspot.com. That's right. And actually, we'll we'll put a link uh, to it up on our website on our uh, on theparacast.com. Well, but... Absolutely. That's the least we can do for you, sir. You've been writing about credible UFO photographs, and this is an area that I have a very deep interest in. Uh, I just recently started writing a column for UFO magazine called The Critical Eye, looking at real useful and pragmatic image analysis, trying to determine what photographs are credible and which aren't. In, in, the, in the era of Photoshop, it's so easy to fake things, it's so easy to fabricate any kind of image, that now we have to become even more critical about how we evaluate photographs. And a case I haven't brought up on the Paracast yet, but I'm, I'm writing about right now and I think is really fascinating, is the really extensively documented case that happened in Brazil in 1958, the Trindade Island photograph and uh, reports where you had a very visible structured craft sighted and photographed during daytime. You know, no lights involved here. This was something that was very visible. It was witnessed by a number of, uh, of crew members of this boat that was out, this uh, Brazilian uh, Navy boat. 
we've got fairly good uh, analysis on this photograph that indicates that yes we have a structured object which is far away from where the photo where the the photographs were taken it's not some miniature hanging in front of a camera we have an extensive amount of corroborated reports from crew members of watching this thing for more than a few minutes watching it fly around this island i look at these photographs kevin and i think they're some of the most credible photographs that exist in the history of ufo photography I'm wondering what your take is on this particular case and this photographic evidence. I have seen nothing that suggests to me that this is a hoax. I've read the skeptics who say that they have proven it to be a hoax, that there's all kinds of manipulation that was involved, that the photographer somehow did a double exposure, that there really weren't a whole lot of witnesses for it. But I've seen nothing that really proves any of that stuff. It, it seems to be a fairly straightforward case of a craft from another world flying around the island out there in the Atlantic. And a similar case is the McMinnville photographs taken in 1950 by Paul Trent. There's nothing to suggest those photographs are faked, and yet the skeptical world, the debunking world, when they look at those photographs, say, well, it's a hoax. What's your evidence for that? Yeah. You know, if they're not a hoax, then there's something very anomalous to those pictures. And it's the same thing with the, the Brazilian case in January of 1958, that it's either or. It's either a hoax or it's real. There's no misidentification. It's not a light in the distance. It's somehow the atmosphere got in the way and it looks anomalous. It's an either or case. And I come down on the side of it being some sort of extraterrestrial craft. Same thing in McMinnville. It's an extraterrestrial craft. And you were talking about Donald Menzel a while ago being rabid. The Lubbock Lights case, the photographs taken by Carl Hart Jr. And I, I interviewed Carl Hart 10 years ago or so, and he told me at the time he still doesn't know what he photographed. No one was able to duplicate the photographs by trying to photograph the birds flying over uh, Lubbock, Texas, and yet Donald Menzel said they're a hoax. Well, what's your evidence for them to be a hoax? Couldn't explain them any other way, therefore they had to be a hoax. And I think that's too often the position taken by the skeptics and the debunkers. Well, we know there's no such thing as UFOs. We know there's no extraterrestrial spacecraft flying saucers in our atmosphere. Therefore, these photographs must be a hoax because they cannot be authentic. <laughs> We'd like to hear from you. If you want to contact Gene and David, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the Paracast and visit our spirited discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them you heard their ad on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will, too. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. 
There's one thing we do know. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Kevin D. Randall, and we'll have a link on our site at thepowercast.com to his blog so you can check out his writings and learn more about what he does. David? Well, in the specific case of these images from um, from Trinidad, when uh, uh, debunkers, which, by the way, it's important to point out that a debunker is not the same thing as a skeptic. A skeptic is someone with an open mind who's willing to consider all possibilities in a reasonable fashion. A debunker is yet another person that's staked out a position that they're going to prove that something is fake no matter what the evidence, no matter what the testimony supports. And so, you know, in the case of the debunker, this is another person who essentially is adding noise, not signal to the conversation. I think that's a very important distinction to draw. I like to think that on the Paracast, we approach things from a skeptical point of view because there's so much disinformation, there is so much noise in this field that one has to try to apply some level of logical reason and deductive analysis to, to arrive at, at some kind of a core of truth, you know, which is a very difficult thing. Now, in the case of the Trinidad photographs, what is clear to me is that if a debunker is going to say these are multiple exposures, you have a hard time making that case when you've got multiple consecutive contiguous photographs of this thing in different positions in the sky, clearly being affected by atmospheric haze, clearly being properly integrated into the emulsion characteristics of the film. Whenever you do multiple exposure stuff, you always have problems with things like the grain of the film. and. In terms of having multiple contiguous photographs of something that's changing position in the sky and fairly significantly where it's clear that these photographs are all taken at generally the same time, they're not taken on different days, atmospheric conditions confirm these photographs, that they were all consecutive photographs, that to me really takes away the idea that these could possibly be multiple exposures. On top of that, as I pointed out before, you have extensive testimony from a number of people who were on this ship, and this was a military ship. We're not talking about a cruise ship, and I think that's a very important thing. When you have testimony coming from trained people, you know, when you have people who are in the in the Navy and they're saying, we're seeing something anomalous in the sky, it's kind of the equivalent to when pilots give their testimony about UFOs. A pilot is trained to look at the sky and to know what is an aircraft, what is a bird, you know, that's their job to know these things. So I think that in the case of debunkers who are going to try to contest the contents of the Trinidad case, they're, they're really running into a wall there. It's interesting because there's one particular quote from a one Captain Sutherland of the U.S. Navy who in trying to essentially debunk these photos, the quote was, it is the reporting officer's private opinion that a flying saucer would be unlikely at the very barren island of Trinidad as everyone knows that Martians are extremely comfort-loving creatures. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Ridiculous, and, it, and that's a, that's an actual quote. It underscores the idea that here's someone who's essentially speaking out of their bleep. And it's just it's just nonsense. So I mean, anybody listening to the show should go and look at these photographs, and we'll provide a link to them up on the Paracast uh, website. Now, Kevin, you've been looking at UFO occurrences in the 90s, and I'm curious to know what your opinion is of the very well-documented UFO flap that was going on in Mexico City during the entire decade of the 1990s. Any thoughts about that? I haven't looked at that in any kind of depth. I have looked at some of the, the photos, and I have looked at some of the videotapes. The one that bothers me the most is the objects supposedly going through a formation of helicopters. Mm -hmm. 
and there seemed to be no reaction on the part of the pilot. Right. It seems to me that if you're in a helicopter and something's coming at you or moving through your formation, you're going to attempt to evade it. And as a former helicopter pilot who's flown many, many hours in formations, I'm aware of all the pro ancillary problems that, that could come about from a reaction, a sudden reaction by one of the pilots in a formation, that it, you do not operate alone. But it just struck me in watching that one videotape, and, it, and it, you know, this is the only one that I'll, you know, I really know anything about, is that there just seemed to be no reaction on the part of the pilot. So it looked as if it was something that was not really in the formation or flying to the formation or flying through the formation at the time the, the videotape was taken. And that, to me, suggests that there's some sort of manipulation going on. But that's really the only one that I've looked at with any kind of a, a skeptical eye or a, any, any kind of, of in-depth analysis. Other, other sightings around there, and I, and I know there's literally hundreds of them and there's uh, hundreds of videotapes, I just don't know that much about them. Where do you find the credible uh, sighting episodes or flaps in the 1990s? I like the Belgium sightings. Can you tell our uh, listeners about those? Oh, it, the triangular-shaped craft that was seen operating in the area of Belgium, Western Europe, over Great Britain, 1989-1990, that time frame. It was, one of them was intercepted by, I think, the Belgian Air Force, and the uh, commander of the Belgian Air Force said that they just don't know what they were attempting to intercept or what, what the object was. Good radar locks, that sort of thing, that suggested it was a solid object, not some kind of an optical illusion and that sort of thing. Any number of sightings there, people on the ground seeing it, pilots seeing it, being seen in one location, and then later being seen at a separate location and multiple independent reports of, of the object. I was also thinking of the Phoenix Lights from 1997. I think some of the videotapes have pretty well been established as being flares from the, um, I think it was the Air Guard, as a matter of fact. I think it was, uh, was it uh, Delaware? Air Guard uh, had, had been on some sort of a mission on one of the ranges, and, and they dropped some flares, and analysis of the videotapes suggested at least some of those showed flares, but there were other sightings and other videotapes that do not show flares. So there's some interesting sightings in Arizona in the 1997 era, which is not to say there aren't other sightings independent singular sightings from around the United States and around the world in the 1990s that aren't equally intriguing and interesting. But it also was interesting, and, and Carl Flock and I discussed this a couple of times, which it seemed like the better sightings were from the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. Hmm. It, it looked almost like you had any number of scientific expeditions to Earth to gather data and the people gathering the data all went home to analyze it and hadn't been back for a while. So that we did not get the kind of sightings and the quality of sightings and the number of sightings that we got, we got in that earlier era. And he and I discussed that a couple of times in relation to what, where UFOs were today and where they had been 40 and 50 years ago. Well, of course, part of that, though, is the fact that I found that there are such a num uh, such huge number of incidents that never get reported. On the fifth episode of the Paracast, I talk about an episode that I went through in Caracas, Venezuela, in 1974, which was a major episode involving hundreds, maybe thousands of people, and a, a, a clear daytime sighting of a cigar craft, a, an extended sighting. That was never reported in the UFO lore that I can tell. There is no documentation of that anywhere. MUFON has no record of this. And it's been my own sort of desire to head back to Caracas and go visit the, paper, the newspapers there because the next morning there were front page stories about this. These were, at the time, very well known in Venezuela 
and uh, essentially they are transparent to UFO history. I have to believe if that one huge sighting, this one huge episode I was part of, if that could fall into the sands of history, what else has never been reported? And that brings me to an important question I've wanted to ask you, which is that uh, in talking about this topic, especially in, in the United States, I believe that the media basically goes out of its way not to report these things for, for any number of reasons. And I think that people believe that, well, you know, gee, if, if there were huge numbers of sightings, the media would report it. And gee, the media give us a pretty good version of what goes on in reality. And I've always thought, well, gee, look at the disconnect between, for example, the media coverage of the situation in Iraq versus the truth of what's really going on there. And I know, Kevin, that you were on the ground in Iraq. What were the issues that you saw about the reality inside of the country and the media perception and the media presentation of that reality here in the United States? Before you answer, let's just have a cliffhanger. to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene and David B. Edney. We're talking to Kevin D. Randall, UFO investigator, who's also in the National Guard and has also been in Iraq and has his own insights. So let's have the answer. Interesting, interesting about the Iraq. I've, I've noticed that there are places on the Internet where there are people questioning whether or not I was actually in Iraq, thinking I made this whole thing up for some reason. And I don't know what their, what their motivation is for that, but I have lots of pictures of me in Iraq. But we had what I called our open source intelligence, which was basically a satellite TV hookup. And that's also kind of interesting that uh, almost everybody in Iraq, meaning the American military, had some kind of a satellite arrangement so that they could watch programming from on home. And we had the opportunity to watch all three evening news broadcasts, one after another, on the satellite system that we had. So I could watch ABC, CBS, and NBC News, and they would often talk about stories, and they'd say, lie you know, here in Baghdad, and I'm thinking, I'm in Baghdad, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> but the best example is Ted Koppel came over, and he's reporting on this school that had been badly damaged in the looting that followed the destruction of the Republican Guard. And he's pointing out all the things that are wrong with it, and he's pointing up raw sewage bubbling up in the courtyard of the school, and he says, this is just absolutely terrible. And I'm standing there thinking, we fixed 20 500 schools in Iraq, and he finds the one we haven't gotten to yet. Hmm. It just seems to be that there's no good deed that can go reported. We must, we must find the bad stuff to report. There was all these surveys saying that the Iraqi people want the Americans to leave. And I say, yeah, that's true. But there was, a, there was always a caveat. You know, when, when we talked to the Iraqis, says, yes, we want the Americans to go home, but not right now. So if you ask an Iraqi, do you want the Americans to leave, they're going to tell you yes. If you ask them when, they're going to say when they get security, when the Iraqi army and police forces up to standards and can begin to protect the citizens. That's when they'd like the Americans to leave, but not right now. And so, you know, that's what I saw 
on the ground in, in Iraq. I mean, there's a road that ran from the Green Zone, which was in downtown Baghdad where the ambassador hit out in the airport, which we call BIOP for the Baghdad International Airport, changed from the Saddam Hussein International Airport. And I have pictures of, of actually the sign before they changed it that says Saddam Hussein International Airport. But there was a road that ran from, from there downtown, and the media started calling us this the highway of death. Right. What the hell are they talking about? I was on that road any number of times. It was not the highway of death. Once we got diverted because there was an IED possibility along it, and so we ended up in who knows where in downtown Baghdad, which was kind of interesting, but you know, the highway of death. And so the, the, the news media jumps on these things, and, and they did the same thing in the Vietnam War, so that what was happening on the ground in Vietnam was not really reflected what you saw on the evening news. And the best example is in Tet of 68, everybody thought that that Saigon was in flames, that the city was burning to the ground based on the reports. And there's a, an interview that was done with a Johnson aide who said, we were talking to the generals uh, over the communication system. They were saying, well, it was no big deal. We got things contained. It's, it's handled. And yet we're seeing Saigon in flames. You know, who would have, what are we going to believe, the generals in, on the ground or what we're seeing ourselves on the television? And the answer is, well, you should have, you should have believed what the generals were telling you because they were right. And what you were seeing was a little bit of payback in the Cholon district of Saigon because the Vietnamese and the Chinese hated each other. And once the attempt began, the, the Vietnamese took the opportunity to set fire to part of the Chinese section of the city. And so you know, there's always been this disconnect. And as a writer, I'm well aware that the words I pick create a sense about the veracity of a witness. Right. If I say the witness claimed something happened, that's different than I say if the witness said something happened, because claim implies that there's a little bit of doubt about the, what the witness said, that there's some reason not to be completely taken by what the witness said, because he claims something, and it may not be true, but if I said he said it, then that little element of doubt is removed. And it's the same thing when you have reporters or photographs or whatever you want from an area you can't get into to determine what's really happening there. So I could see what the reporters were saying and the things they were claiming compared to what I saw personally by being on the ground in that location. And sometimes they differed greatly. This brings me to an important question, Kevin. How do you then create a method for researching this topic and actually cutting through the noise of the media, given that it's pretty clear that the media doesn't give us a huge amount of useful, pragmatic information about this topic. How do you personally go about trying to uncover some truth in this? Because it's becoming clear to me, looking at more and more of this material, that ultimately I suspect that what we're going to find out about this whole thing is very different from what we even suspect now. And, and something that you said, I just want to point something out, and this is not meant to incite you into a fight or anything, but when we talk about UFOs, I'm not completely confident that in the majority of these cases even, we can say extraterrestrial craft. I think that that is still an unknown at this point. And there is a possibility that the truth behind a large amount of this is going to turn out to be something far stranger than extraterrestrial craft. Ultimately, what do you find are useful methods for gathering pragmatic information about this topic? What do you do? There's all kinds of things you can do. One of the things is look at the uh, articles in the newspapers, which brings me to, to kind of an interesting story. The Scientific American back in 1852 carried the story of this object blown out of solid stone. 
Mm-hmm. And it's in lots of UFO books, proving that there's been a history of visitation or intelligent manufacturing of goods for millions of years on Earth. When I, when I got the article out of the Scientific American, there was a term in there that looked like it said it, it, the vessel may have been created by an early resident of the area named Tuba Kane. And looking at that carefully, I noticed that in the margin there was like might have been a, a bit of debris from the microfilm process, but it also could have been an L. And so the word might have been Tubal Cain. Tubal Cain, it turns out, is some kind of Masonic symbol and maybe a distress symbol or whatever. So the question, the question becomes, you know, Tubal Cain, why is the Scientific American carrying the story? Why is that specific name in there, which clearly has no relevance to the article. And so it leads you off into other tangents. And, and, and the real point is you take a look at maybe a basic newspaper story and there are some things in there that spark your interest or you try to check them out to see if those things are true or where they lead you. If you have a chance, you talk to the witness themselves, preferably in person, because then you can gauge their reactions and you can watch their body language, but if not, on the telephone. And that provides you a perspective so you learn whether or not the article as written was correct or if the reporter made some sort of an error, misunderstood something that was said. And that's always a possibility that when you begin filtering these things through various layers, there's a misunderstanding or a mistake that's made so that you you go back to the original sources. And so rather than look at the UFO, books that talked about this vessel being blown out of the stone in, in Massachusetts, you go to the Scientific American or the original story and you find this bizarre link to something else. So it's just a matter of taking the information and following the leads where they go to see if you can get to some kind of ultimate truth. You've actually got a great write-up on this on your uh, on your blog, which is kevinrandall.blogspot.com and I would suggest to all of our listeners that they go check that out. And I believe, Gene, it's about time for us to wrap up, isn't it? It sure is, but we really need a couple more sessions here. So let me thank Kevin Randall for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. Paracast.